Hello, welcome to another episode of Tapestry. Um, I'm Tarun Sakrani and I'm joined by Saz Agarwal. And today we're going to tell you something about what happened in Sindh when the British entered and how life changed for the Hindus when the British came in. And of course, what happened towards the end when the British were leaving. And we'll talk about something about the freedom movement. But if you look at the British coming into Sindh, it actually happened in 1843. And they came in in gross violation of treaties they had signed with the Mirs, the Talpur Mirs, the rulers of Sindh at that time. And uh, they had signed these treaties of eternal friendship. I mean, you have to read them. It's quite exaggerated in terms of how much <laughs> their friendship was going to last forever. But, you know, when the time came and it suited them, they came in with their guns and the poor old Mirs. They had nothing but their fancy manners and, you know, their, uh, their ways of living. They just didn't have a chance. So then the British came in, they took over, they um, they didn't kill the Mirs, but they kind of dispatched them. Some of them were sent in chains to Calcutta. Uh, I think I've read that, um, you know, they were separated from their families. So it was a terrible thing they did. But they came in and they started ruling. One of the things that happened is that, of course, a lot of the Hindus were traders, as we know. And it wasn't that easy because what happens when you have new rulers First of all, the old rulers are your best customers, right? They're <laughs> the biggest Absolutely. customers. And they're all out. And then what happens is the new guys bring in, bring in their own suppliers. They bring in their own, uh, you know, Correct. products. And they even introduced the company Rupee. So if you were dealing in, uh, if you were, you know, you have this banking thing, which we talked about in the last episode with uh, Professor Claude Markowitz. Yep. Uh you you didn't you you didn't have any you know so you had to start all over again so this was one of the things that happened with the british occupation that the british citizenship gave uh, the hindus who wanted to travel and trade it gave them this huge opportunity and you know what i've done is i've pulled up this little story which i read long ago in Berumal translation, which I'm going to quickly read to you so you'll get a sense of what was happening there. And I call it the case of Mukhi Nichaldas. When Mukhi Tejumal died, his eldest son Nichaldas was just 15. He went to work in his cousin Mukhi Sukhrandas's office. I'm assuming that was in Hyderabad. And then he went to Sindhwark in Colombo with Mukhi Pritamdas. In time, his brothers also took to Sindh work. Alumal in Rangoon, Bagomal in Malta, and Kundomal in Colombo. Bagomal was only 17 when he went to Malta, but he saw its potential, and on his first visit back to Hyderabad, he shared his excitement with his brothers. Nichaldas raised the initial capital with a loan from Sukramdas, who they'd worked with earlier. And in 1888, left for Malta along with Bagomal and Alumal, arranging for Kundumal to join them later. On their first night in Malta, it was freezing cold. The brothers lit a coal-fired heater in their hotel room, closed the windows and went to sleep. When morning came, Nichal Das and Alumal were horrified to find that their brother Bagumal had died from carbon monoxide poisoning. The 20-year-old brother, based on whose strength and experience they had come to Malta, was no more. The two surviving brothers braced themselves and decided to make the best of the situation. They opened a store 
Nichamal brothers on a street named Persian Indian Bazaar. Their business prospered and they opened branches which were run by Alumal at Port Said and Cairo under the name of A. Nichamal. In 1902, Nichal Das retired and returned to Hyderabad. Nichal Das married the sister of Bhai Isardas Tilosingh Maitani and had three daughters. All his daughters married Amils. One was married to Bhairumal Adwani, who of course is from whom we are getting the story. Tagi to Said Keshavram, who was from a Sipahi Malani family. Uh, he held the gaddi of, of a Sufi peer. Wow, okay. Yeah, so I, I wanted to just take you a little bit into the lives that they led then, the spotting of the opportunity, not really knowing where they were going, what they were doing, experiencing this kind of, you know, tragedy. And then that typical thing, which we know Cindy's do, that you say, fine, you know, it's what can we do? You're mourning, you're grieving, but you're still carrying on. Yeah, it's it's where the British get keep calm and carry on. That's that's where they've learned it, I think. But what is also amazing is to see the the, the places you named. So you've got Rangoon yeah. in the east, you've got Colombo down south, yeah. you've got Malta all the way out in yeah. Europe. So it's yeah. it's spread the entire network. And then you obviously mentioned Aden and Cairo. So right. it, it covered a lot of a lot of Geography. the globe. And the you ages, know. 17, 18, 20. Yeah. Young, young, probably no experience at all. The other thing I liked about this little passage is they mentioned how the daughters all married Amils. I think um, that says a lot. I mean, that tells you, first of all, when you say Amil and Bhaiband, obviously Sindhis know what that means. But if you're not a Sindhi, among the uh, Sindhis who um, were affected by partition, uh, the main communities were the Amils and the Bhaibans, and then you had the Shikarpuris and people from other places also. A lot of Shikarpuris also call themselves Bhaibans because broadly, Bhaibans are the ones who were in trade. And the Amils were the ones who were educated. So they were either working in the government service or they were professionals. It's generally assumed that the Amils and Bhaibans, they marry just within the community. Here there's a clear case. And this is something which actually happened a lot more often than anyone would talk about it. Because the Amils always like to say that, oh, we have a pure bloodline from the last four generations or whatever. No, that's an exaggeration. They would go back seven <laughs> generations. It was very common to go back seven generations. And to right. the feeling that you have been, uh, you've had education in your family for seven generations, it's very unusual anywhere in the world to know that you've been from a, you're from a family that has been educated for seven generations. And to have the names and, you know, records to an extent, because um, that's a consequence of the education. But And it did happen that many times the Bhaibans would often want the daughters to go to Amil families where the uh, woman would not have to live alone. Because among the uh, the Sindhwarkis, the men were living elsewhere. Correct, yes. As you know. And the women were alone and it was a very difficult life for them. Yep. So partly it was this, that you, you know, and especially if you're you can pick a groom from the community, you know, you can look around and see who is a smart guy who's likely to be a good provider, who's a good person. And then you can talk to his dad and say, hey, you know what? Uh, and uh, uh, your daughter is given in hand to um, 
the the sun there. But apart from that, that so was that was the early stages of swipe right, swipe left without the swipe right, swipe left. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Except it was being done by the parents, right? Especially by the dads. So, so uh, the parents actually had the right to swipe right or swipe left. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, many of them, they would take a dowry or they would tell the boy that, look, now you can go and study in England. They would sponsor their education. Right. As, as an alternative. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you know, you're you're paying for the boy, or the son-in-law to go and study, get his degree in engineering or in law or, you know, from right or from the University of London. And uh, so that was one of the things that education uh, um, which the Amas uh, were so committed to. And, you know, being educated abroad meant a uh, um, better job and, and all that. Between uh, 1843 and 1947, when the British left, there were a lot of things happened. And some of them were landmark things. Like the most important, I think, was 1936, when Sindh was actually actually separated from the Bombay province and made its own province. Because when the British came in, they put Sindh into the Bombay province. It became a part of the Bombay province. Uh, the British also moved the capital of the Talpur uh, Mills from Hyderabad to Karachi. So Karachi, of course, being a port, it, it just became this big cosmopolitan city where a lot of people came in from Bombay province. So you had Maharashtrians, you had Gujaratis, and they were, and, and of course you had the Parsis. The Parsis were the elite of uh, British India, right? Right, yes. So with the Amels, you see a lot of uh, family photos in which the women are wearing saris in the Parsi style. Oh, really? So okay, wow. That was, the, that was the influence of the Parsis. And Sindh, of course, as we know, the traditional dress for women was actually more uh, a formal dress was like a skirt and a blouse and a rabu, uh, the dupatta. The the, yeah. At home, they would wear sutan uh, and uh, uh, paru and like uh, the loose pajamas. Kind yeah, of loose pajamas and a blouse and uh, rabu. So you do see the photos with that, of course, but uh, in formal occasions, they would wear a Parsi style sari. So, uh, of course, on our YouTube channel, we will be showing you some of You these. can watch some pictures and stuff, yeah. Because Sindh was under the Bombay province, uh, Karachi became this cosmopolitan city. And there was a lot of links between Karachi and Bombay, which, of course, was good for trade. It was good for employment. But it wasn't that good for Sindh as a uh, province to be administrated. And there were a lot of people who wanted to... Um, who wanted more attention to Sindh itself. And they felt that Sindh should be administered separately because it was so different. It was so different culturally, geographically. It was different from the rest of the province. So there was a movement to separate it. And it was done in 1936. It became the province of Sindh. When the movement for partition became big, that separation made it easier. Right. But it was it wasn't done for communal reasons it was done for because it was necessary i've seen this with some of the elderly people i've interviewed they feel so bitter about that separation because it was actually in a way the first step towards partition the next really important thing that happened the period that uh, was important everywhere in the world of course was the second world war and that also affected 
synth in different ways. The saddest way is that the families were separated. There were families who lived in other countries. There were men who lived in other countries. And the sea routes closed. Civilians Everything was shut. I, I met people who, for some reason, hadn't seen their the men folk for seven years, you know, because two, three years, uh, the guy is on his, um, uh, his trip. Just when he's ready to come home, the routes close. Everything close. And even, I think even it was difficult to get mail or messages across. Yeah, impossible. And communication anyway was nothing like what we know today, which is so instant and so easy. So uh, I've heard of people sitting around the radio to listen to what's happening, you know. Uh, so I, I, I'll just uh, finish this thing which I was saying about the sea routes, which is about a, a case I know of a bunch of Sindhis from Gibraltar who got what they thought was going to be the last ship and they uh-huh. rushed aboard and uh, the ship set sail and just before they reached uh uh, I think they before they reached Karachi, they, they were diverted by a German raider and then they headed to Colombo and there they were bombed mm. and then they were rescued. So it's a very long story. We will talk about this properly because it's a huge story. So we, yep. unfortunately, the person who told me this story, Monica Metani Bhujwani, uh, is no longer alive. It would have been so oh. nice if she could have. Yeah, she passed away three years ago and she was just wonderful and she actually wasn't even there it was her parents who were there and on that ship on that ship her parents were on that ship and they uh, were eventually rescued and they were they spent a few several months or maybe more of during the war in Royan in a prisoner of war camp in France on the coast of France a place called Royan okay and that's where Monica was born <laughs> Wow. So her mom was expecting her when they left Gibraltar, hoping to have the baby back at home in um, in Sindh. Right. She, instead, Monica was born in Royan, in the prisoner of war camp, and she was named Monica for the nurse who delivered her, the kind nurse who delivered her. Wow, brilliant. Yeah, this is, and, and then back in Sindh also, there was a lot going on in terms of the troops with being there and, you know, uh, the situation was different. Interestingly, Sindh was under martial law in 1942. And of course, it's a very, very complicated story. Once again, we'll get a professor of history to explain it to us. But what I can tell you for now is that it might, it was not to do with the war. It might have been due, might have been to do with the Quit India movement, which was 1942. But it was ostensibly because the British wanted to keep the horse under control. And the horse were this group of followers of the Pir Pagaro, which is a really interesting story. I have written a tiny bit about it in uh, my new book, which is called Losing Home, Finding Home. But we will talk about this subject uh, you know, in another, we should, we should uh, visit it episode. on another time. And then, of course, when once the Quit India movement starts, everybody is involved. Uh, Subhash, Dr. Subhash Vijlani is going to tell us something about his family's participation. But before that, I want to tell you about somebody who uh, I think he's a little better known than he was before. But when I heard about him uh, for the first time, I had already nearly finished writing my first book. Uh, sorry, 
Spanish homeland. And it just so happened. I actually had the proof copy with me. Yeah, and I was showing it to a friend just to show him the design and everything. And his daughter says, hey, my friend's mother, she, you have to meet her before you put this book out. You have to meet her. So I met her. And she was Madhuri Shet. And she as well, sadly, is no more. She passed away two months ago. But Madhuri told me a lot of very interesting things. They're there in that book. And they're also there in Losing Home, Finding Home. But one of the things which really, uh, a very important thing, which I didn't know before, was about how Hemu Kalani was hanged. Now, uh -huh. Hemu Kalani was uh, uh, one of these protesters during the Quit India movement. And he and a group of boys they did something like there was a train coming and they removed a, a, a piece, a, a rail, so that the train would be derailed. It was seen by somebody working at a biscuit, Mangaram biscuit factory nearby. This was happening in Sakhar. Ah, okay. So he was captured and he was sentenced to death. And of course, the people of Sakhar petitioned the Viceroy for mercy. And there was an edict that, yes, he will be pardoned if he gives us the names of the, the co-conspirators. Right. And Which he was, never did. Yeah. And he was hanged. And it was uh, March 1943. And Hemu Kalani was 19 years old at that time. Wow. So, you know, here was this child who was killed. And he is not celebrated by most of us. So Another name lost in history. Yeah. But I think, you know, now... He's not completely lost and he uh, hopefully will find a place in textbooks at least. Right. Or we can tell our kids, right? We yeah. can pass the word on. I want to also tell you another story. Quickly. Yeah, one more. Oh, and wow. Okay. This is about somebody called Vishnu Shahani, who actually lived in my city, Pune. His family came to Pune, uh, which is what it was called then, in the 1920s, and they set up a bookstore in Pune. And of course, it was a bookstore of mostly English books, and their major customers were the um, the British Tommies, as they used to be called, the soldiers. Because Una is the and 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 was even then the uh, southern command of the Indian Army, so it was a very big station. It was a very important station for the British for the simple reason that the Marathas gave them the most trouble. So he actually has, I think, like our. Asterix village, it has five uh, uh, British cantonments in Pune and around. And the Shahani family came, they ran a bookstore here. And during the Quit India movement, there was a book by Gandhi, which is called Quit India, and they filled their display cases with that. So if any soldier oh, wow. okay. would say Quit in, they would see Quit India, Quit India. And Vishnu was a young man, I think he was in his late teens at that time, might be 19 or 20. And he 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 wrote an appeal to the British troops. And that was just this heartfelt uh, appeal that, you know, we want our own country. And that was seen as sedition. Right. Uh, you know, his home was searched and the, this document was found and he was put in jail. And then after that, his father, who was also who was elderly and ailing, he was also put in jail. I know the story because I met his wife years later, his widow then. And right. she had written a book called uh, Yerwada Jail Ju Kahanio. And I translated it working along with her, all the tales from Yerada Jail. Uh, her name was Rita Shahani. And she, after her husband died, she wrote this book about what Vishnu's life was like in jail and some of the freedom movement. 
because you know when their kids were little that would be their bedtime story you know dada okay. tell us what did the jailer say to you dada what was the food like what were the toilets like so you know they would refuse to sleep until dada told them oh my god wow <laughs> what life was like in jail because though in those days it was a matter of pride right if your father, your father to be in jail it, it wasn't an ordinary thing it was because he was a patriot of the first order so what i wanted to tell you is that the inspector general of prisons at the time he was an advani oh right okay another sindhi yeah. i came across this really funny thing which uh, you know uh, everything that gandhi has written has been documented right right everything so here's this quick thing during the 1932 fast bapu was visited one day by bap babing his wife of course He feared that she would reprimand him for having embarked on the fast. So, to disarm her, just as she arrived, he caught hold of her by the hand and drew her to his side. At this, Ba exclaimed, "What is this nonsense?" Bapu then asked Ba, "Are you not prepared to die with me?" Ba answered, "Why should I? But you had first better give up your fast before you talk of anything else to me. May God prevail upon you to do this." Whereupon Bapu laughed and said, "Look at your hollowed-out cheeks. It appears our superintendent Bhandari looks after me better than your superintendent Advani did after you." <laughs> Then, looking in the direction of Shri Bhandari, Bapu smiled and jokingly remarked, "No, the Sindhis are any day better than the Punjabis." Shri Bhandari joined in the joke though he told Ba that she was doing him great injustice in this way the whole atmosphere became lighter so it was this sweet thing about Ba and Bapu and the flirtation and you know the whole thing but i thought it was interesting because it tells us about Advani who was actually in charge when old Vishnu Shahani was in jail right okay. so i i like this because you know it tells you about people on both sides and how the whole thing is So let's uh, call um, Dr. Subhash Bijlani in. Yes, I'm really excited because it carries on into our stories of of the freedom movement, and I believe he has a lot to tell us in terms of his family and you know how their experiences were. And we'll we'll at least I'm sure I will learn something new that I didn't know about Sindhi freedom fighters. I think that's the thing with Subhash. I always learn something when I speak to him because he's an erudite person and I should also say in the interest of full disclosure that we are related. I should also say that I had never seen him until I published my first book, uh, Stories from a Vanished Homeland, which wow, okay. I told you, uh, you know, I had decided when my mom remembered the date on which the uh, ship came in, I said I'm going to have a big bash or at least a Tiny little bash for her, all our folks. And um, Subhash, he was in Delhi at the time. Luckily, not in the US. And he made the effort to come. He flew down and joined us. And that was the first time I met him. And I think he's an amazing guy. Lovely. So, with that, let's get him on the show. Uh, welcome, Subhash. I'm just going to tell you all a little about him. Uh, Dr. Mr. Subhash Bijlani is currently professor and program director of the Graduate Business Administration, University of Maryland Global Campus, UMGC. Before this, Subhash was the CEO and managing director of Molins of India Limited (MOI India). He has served on the boards of governors of numbers of a number of companies and educational institutions. Dr. Bijlani's consulting engagements have included United Nations Conference on Trade and Development (UNCTAD), 
Government of Nepal on behalf of World Intellectual Property Organization, WIPO, United Nations Industrial Development Organization, the Council of Scientific and Industrial Research Government of India, and other leading organizations in India. He received the Shiromani Award for Extraordinary Excellence by Mother Teresa. Welcome, Subhash. When I was reading out what I just read out, I felt that you have this amazing uh, stride between industry and academia. So I thought we should try, uh, you know, tell our listeners how that happened. And also, you mentioned Molins India. Were there? There must be other companies as well. And you started off as an engineer. That is right. My basic training is in engineering. I graduated in UK actually at the University of Manchester in mechanical engineering. But like all professions, you grow out of your profession and do something that you never thought you would be doing. So like all good engineers, I like to think I drifted into management. And then later in life, I drifted into, I don't know what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's a journey, you know, you grow out of it. It's like, uh, you know, caterpillars becoming butterflies. So you, you change. And I kind of drifted into academics uh, much later in life. I was always fascinated by scholarship. So yeah, I drifted, accident of circumstances. And I actually did my PhD in the US at a ripe young age of 67. Oh, so, wow, that's very nice. That's so inspiring. Thank right. you so much. So, you know, it's, it's uh, I call myself accidental professor. Uh, but yeah, my roots were in uh, in practice and in work in operations, and uh, I find it very exciting uh, to be able to uh, bridge the divide. So we are here to basically talk about the roots, and um, Tarun and I have been talking about the British occupation of Sin and how the British left and what happened before that, the freedom movement. So I know you have a lot to tell and you've contributed uh, partly to our the book that we all worked on together, Sindhi Tapestry. Mm -hmm. So right. you have some uh, stories uh, from your family in that. And also in the book I've just come out with, Losing Home, where there's quite a lot about your family and participation in the freedom movement. So I was thinking that for now, um, let's start with you just telling us, uh, give us an idea about what was life like for your family because it was British um, British rule. And, you know, obviously it couldn't have been that easy uh, being uh, getting your sustenance from the British and also wanting them out. So, you know, that must have been a bit of a struggle. Yes, that's a great question. The thing is that I will preface my comments with two observations. Uh, first of all, uh, British occupation in Sindh was no different than British occupation anywhere else. So that particular dichotomy that you talk about, where you actually have seek sustenance from the British and at the same time you want them out, that's a thread that ran throughout India and it was nothing very specific to Sindh. Now, that said, by the other remark, I think we should all remember, when we talk about those times and we talk about how it must have been in the, under the British rule, none of us have uh, direct memories of it. Right. We, are not, we are not eyewitnesses to that experience. So we, are, uh, we carry those memories from what is told to us. 
Oh, what we've read. So, therefore, we, we see that through the lens of whatever uh, memories were passed on to us, certain things we do know for certain as to the people who participated and what their motivation was. Now, uh, directly to your question, uh, remember that uh, many of the Sindhis, uh, my father included, my grandfather included, uh, they were into what you will today call administration. Those were the those were the only jobs. Either they were in administration, or they were predominantly in trade and commerce. And in both the cases, you you depended on the rules, regulations, and circumstances that guided you. So there was uh, no motivation and no desire to really depart from that or fight that system. So you went along. In the case of my father, particularly, and my grandfather, and his uncle, they were in judiciary. So being in judiciary, you had other responsibilities. And therefore, there was no direct involvement in the freedom struggle as such, uh, indirectly. Uh, however, there were others, and they were part of the family. And that is on my Nana's side. My, my maternal grandparents are Motwanis, also from Larkana, as are Bijlanis. Now, they were highly successful business people. Uh, they owned, uh, they were amongst the first people actually to import electronics equipment into what was undivided India. And they were the first ones to actually introduce the public broadcasting system, which came to great benefit of Congress party. Whom they, whom they supported very strongly. So if you see any of the old pictures of uh, Mahatma Gandhi or Nehru or Subhashandra Bose, anyone, you will see the microphone as a thing called Chicago. And Chicago was Motwani's. They were uh, more active. The entire family was active in freedom movement for what kind of what the support that they were giving to Mahatma Gandhi and Congress party. And that actually speaks to the freedom struggle inside our family. My own Nana, Ram Motwani, his brother, Bhojraj Motwani, who were very active. Bhojraj was even more active. And he, he, unlike my Nana, who was scared of going to jail, Bhojraj actually went to jail. Uh, As did uh, Nanik. Nanik Motwani was, of course, the cousin of my Nana. And Nanik Motwani's uh, story is legendary because uh, Nanik and his elder brother Visharam, uh, who set up this Gyangar on Khar on 14th Road, uh, were very prominent business people there. And they actually set up uh, an underground broadcasting radio station for Congress, which the British wanted to get at. Uh, and uh, with great difficulty and some considerable period of time, they traced it and found where it was. And they also found who was running it. And that was Nanak Motwani and his family. So he was dutifully arrested. And then we heard all kinds of stories that he was put on ice labs to confess. And he never confessed. And those were the kinds of stories that we, we heard. And I think part of that wore off on my mother as well. So my mother tells me these stories. Uh, and, you know, this is, it blows me away because now... I have had children. My daughter's also gone through that phase of uh, being a teenager 
I cannot for life of me imagine a girl at that age to actually give up clothes, wear white khadi and march on the streets. This is a different world, wasn't it? Yeah, I think, but there are lots of lessons for us to learn. Uh, you know, what is, how, how, how do people at that young age get fired up with a cause for which they do all kinds of things? Somebody I interviewed, actually it was Shamlu Dudeja, who told me how, that, you know, when she was in Balkanjibari, oh. they would sing, Hum Sindhi hai, Hum Hindi hai, Vatan hai Hindustan hamara. You know, which of course means we are Sindhis, we are Indians, our homeland is Hindustan. So, you know, they were actually um, chanting and uh, singing that. They were being inspired by that uh, feeling of patriotism, even when they were so little. So right. the question I had for you was about Balkan Jibari. So Balkan Jibari is actually the Sindhi uh, kindergarten, if I'm not mistaken. It's yeah. kind of, yeah, and it kind of instills the values, as you just said, you know, singing these songs of national, instills the values. Uh, and of course, is dedicated to education of the very young. Right, so starting young, they started young, and that's how they had children out yeah. on the streets. Yeah. Dr. Vitani, the, the, it's really um, a, a telling story you have, and it, it says a lot about like history and involvement and stuff like that. Saz and I have, you know, kicked off these episodes talking about Sindhis and, you know, obviously our origins and then movement out of uh, Sindh into current India and other parts of the world. <clears throat> one thing we, one theme we touched on in, in some of our discussions was the fact that Sindhis never, or at least a, the, the older generation of Sindhis never really went back to relive a lot of, you know, these stories and, and tell it, at least in, for instance, in my family, it, Till I didn't push my grandparents to tell me a lot of this, it it never came up, which was already way into their late 80s. And, and by then, memories were fading and, you know, it was difficult. What prompted you to get these stories out and how did they come out is, is something I'm, you know, very intrigued about. And and it I think it says a lot for a lot of our listeners how, you know, you were able to collect this and are able to tell it today. You know, that's a great uh, comment and observation, Tarun, because I've often wondered uh, how little uh, we was shared with us, how little was shared with us. And I've often wondered, I think many of us have wondered, I think there are two reasons to this, or two pro uh, prominent uh, reasons for this. One is when your memory is laced with bitterness, you try not to recall it. That's basic. And a lot of memories, uh, if not of violence, we were fortunate because we did not face that kind of violence that some families faced. This is true, yeah. We were in a position in the judiciary, and I think our exit from, uh, from what then became Pakistan was different. And first of all, it was not in August uh, when the upheaval was going on. Right. The division took place. In fact, uh, like many that we know, stayed on. Those who did not stay on came thinking they are going to go back. And those who stayed back thought that those who have gone will come back. <laughs> right. So, uh, and my father uh, and many of uh, his rel relatives were, were one of those who stayed back. They stayed back because uh, 
my father argued that no matter what nonsense goes on between this uh, division on the basis of faith or whatever, a country will always need judiciary. A country will always need some law and order and enforcement. And you're not going to overnight have no judges. And he said, this is where we belong. And so he chose not to leave. It was much later, after August of 1947, I think it was end of 1947 and early 1948, and I think particularly after the assassination of Mahatma Gandhi uh, in January, uh, that I think uh, more violence broke out. Again, to your question, sharing of memories was not something that was very pleasant. That's one part. And secondly, uh, I think the motivation of uh, our parents or grandparents was to make success of the lives of their children of their own and of their own. So they wanted to, to uh, spend more time in digging roots and identifying themselves with the new environment than to harp back and have this divided uh, personality. And you know, uh, I spend time in the US as much as I do and I have family in the UK. And I can see a parallel going on right now. That kind of uh, conflict of divided identity is playing out with the diaspora. The difference is that there is not the trauma of departure from their homeland. So connecting to the homeland, returning to the homeland, connecting with their parents or grandparents is no big shake. But that is what was missing uh, in, in the generation before us. Now, how do I know so much as I do, particularly about the freedom movement? Again, I go back to my original comment that when your, bit, your memories are laced with bitterness, you recall them with hesitation or do not recall them at all. But the stories of freedom movement were the, were the memories of victory. That's very different. Those were the memories of uh, success. We did what we did, we achieved what we achieved. So there was more articulation. So whenever I went to Bombay, uh, and I met Nanak Motwani, and I met Visharam when I was a young boy, and they would uh, never uh, spare a moment to tell me uh, how, how it was. So I think we need to be sensitive to those circumstances. So for your mom, they were happy memories? The freedom movement was a happy memory. And my mom was a rebel. I don't think I had the same guts. <laughs> to be as, uh, I really honestly don't think. And when I look at her time, I mean, it's easy for me to do and say what I do and say. But I think uh, in those times, it was, it was not as easy. And she was a rebel. And she would sit with me. And uh, she was very disillusioned with the way politicians were behaving in India post-independence. Her famous remarks to me were that the Quit India movement should now apply to these politicians. <laughs> <laughs> but she was a great uh, admirer of Mahatma Gandhi and of course as you well know very great admirer of Subhash Chandra Bose I, I, I want to just touch on one other topic before we go into the story uh, it's around uh, the, the freedom movement and the involvement of Sindhis I'm not saying every Sindhi was probably directly or indirectly involved but there are some famous people who have made contributions over time to to you know the the freedom movement yet if you go into our history books 
Sindhis are never, ever brought up as, you know, contributors or you never read key names of, of any individuals. I think the only name I... And I was honestly, I was scratching my head at one point in time to think. And Kripalani was the only name that ever came up as like the the guy who walked alongside Mahatma Gandhi. But nobody else ever gets mentioned. And and again, you know, Saz and I were discussing this briefly in in one of our earlier episodes. Like, was it a case of just keeping a low profile? Did they just get forgotten? Was it a case of oh, you're not originally from India, so we can't you know put you in here? But we're we're hearing stories. It's not like you know there there was no contribution. So, why do you think that happened? <clears throat> there would be different interpretations. Uh, my take would be as follows, and my take will be in two parts. Uh, and and one is, Sindhis, Sindh, was at the same time a part of India, and not a part of India. Uh, Post independence, certainly part of India, not part of India. If you see what I mean, there is no identity mm-hmm. of a Sindhi in India. Correct. That identity is with, uh, I grew up uh, in early days, my boyhood was in Calcutta because my father got a job with the Ministry of Defense and he was posted there. So what is my identity? What my brothers speak Bengali more fluently than they speak any other language. Really? My younger brother and his wife speak fluent Marathi in Bombay, and the, the festivals that they observe are all Maharashtra. My younger brother, youngest brother in Calcutta is uh, Durga Puja guy. Right. So let us be very clear that so far as a our identity, we are part and not part uh, of India in a, in a sense. Or you could argue the other way and say <coughs> we are more part of India than any other Indian is. True. You know, you could also argue that. So that's one part. And therefore, when you talk about the contribution to uh, movement, uh, people identify you as some part of India. And so Sindhis are not. Even when the Sindhis that came here, and that's something that we need to to talk more about, maybe Saz know more about, but we certainly haven't spoken. You know how many Sindhis changed their surnames in India post-partition because they were not getting jobs? Because they had Sindhi surname, because it was so different from any other surnames, they actually changed jobs. Wow. Okay. I have a friend who's Asrani, but I did not know he was Asrani. He goes by name Asra. And there oh, are many wow. who did that. There are many who did that to be able to get on in life at that time. And then, of course, the Bollywood movies in the earlier ones talked about Sindhis as, you know, what was the famous saying, Saz? If you see a Sindhi and a snake. <laughs> yeah, that comes up a lot. Yeah, we, we've a heard lot. that a lot, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it was so, a, a repeated reference to that in Sindhi tapestry also. Right. And, so so yeah. that you must understand. So that's one part. The other right. thing is, the other thing is very interesting. And you see this in, in, uh, in all communities. And you see this in the UK, in USA. But I'll talk about Sindhis in India. And that is... Post the partition, those who were in public uh, image or, or, or in, were public figures, and Kripalani right. would be one of them, Alki Advani would be other, Jairam Das Dalatram would be the other one. There are several Sindhis who were in the public, uh, public life. Mm-hmm. They were struggling to establish their own credentials and own constituency in India. Right. And that was not with Sindhis. Right. 
the Sindhis were A, not concentrated in any particular place to be a vote bank. Correct. And on the other side, Sindhis were too diffused. And if you wanted to rise in the national life, you had to speak to the constituency that was India. And you did not, you worked hard not to over-identify yourself with Sindhi community. And that is so, I can see this with Jairam Das Dalatram and uh, L.K. Advani, uh, who, who was very close, very close because uh, of my marriage, uh, my father-in-law's classmate. They studied together, grew up together, uh, visited each other. I met him multiple times uh, at my father-in-law's home. When he was editor of Organizer, he was not prominent in public life. Uh, so I've known him personally for a long time. And his, his uh, standing always was that he was addressing himself to a community who were strongly to support him uh, in his public life. And he did, he did visit Sindhi Sahitya Academy once in a while. He did speak in Sindhi on platforms once in time, but he did not advocate or encourage Sindhis the way you will find a Bengali or Tamilian doing it. Correct. That was not the case. So I think both these factors uh, worked together. Uh, why we do not hear a lot about uh, Cindy's contribution to freedom movement. One was the fragmentation, uh, low profile as you call it. Mm -hmm. The other one was uh, the work that the Cindy leaders themselves, the position they put them in, they did not want it to be over-identified as Sindhis. They wanted to be identified as Indian. But again, I see this question of identity. I see this being played out in uh, other countries. Uh, I see this in the United States, uh, where I draw parallels, where you have uh, immigrants who are now third, fourth generation. And you know they're Italians, they're Greeks, they're from Europe, they're from other places. And of course, the African-Americans for a long, long time, uh, neither the white Americans nor the African Americans would want to talk about their background, their legacy, and where they came from. It is only now when they've gone into public life and there has been little bit of uh, affirmative action and assertiveness that they are comfortable to where they belong, that we are now talking openly about where they came, how they came, uh, connections with Africa, the countries, and many years ago, I think it was over 20, 30 years ago, that the first novel came out called The Roots, uh, which spoke about the African-American origins and uh, how they were bought and uh, sold in uh, on the ships, on the slave trade to UK and US. And you talk mm -hmm. openly about it now. There are movies about it. And there are TV programs about it. And everybody wants to talk about Roots. And I have friends who are third generation Italian who are sending their children for six months to Italy, go and learn language. They themselves don't speak it. <laughs> you know, and again... So that's the future of the Sindhi language, hopefully. That's what happens. You become comfortable and then you become, you have a sense of pining and longing for what you have lost. Yeah. And the sense of loss is felt by the first generation but they say it's best forgotten because we need to reestablish. So people in the United States would go and start speaking with the American accent. Acceptance, uh, absorption, adoptability. 
is of very high importance. Be one of them, and that's fine. Uh, I believe that's fine. But does it also means that you should uh, be embarrassed or downgrade your own culture and language? Well, maybe not. But maybe that's a natural instinct at self-preservation. Right. Now, I just feel that what we have here is different. It's more poignant because of the contribution to the freedom movement. You know, that wholehearted participation in nation building. And then, you, you know, you lose everything. Well, so the stories that I used to hear was that, you know, of course, they gave up their clothes. They went and burned them. Bonfire. Right. That's the uh, imported fabric. In Larkana, yes. All fabric was imported. I mean, textile was killed. In India, textile industry was killed. It only came up much later. All the uh, silk that was in Bengal, I mean, those are stories. Uh, muslin cloth that was made in, uh, they say you can fold it multiple times and pass it through some small okay. ring or something. But uh, so all textiles were imported, so all clothes were imported. So they went and burned them, bonfire, and of course wore the white khadi saris and blouses. And uh, then they went and protested. And uh, one of the stories that uh, etched in my memory is my mother telling me that there was a train coming, which was passing through Sindh, maybe sure they must be Larkana, uh, which was uh, reported to be carrying British soldiers. So British soldiers were on that uh, train. So they wanted to stop it. So how do you stop it? So these girls left their school and uh, went and lied down on the railway tracks. Wow. And again, I find, you know, I mean, how old? 20, 21, I mean. They must have been in their teens. Must have been teens. younger as well, right? No, hey, younger than that. Uh, they were extremely well off. Uh, you know, they had this Gyan Bagh in Larkana, which had a common wall with uh, Bhutto's uh, property which uh, many, many years later, I, when I visited Pakistan, I was actually made to see that. So the Gyan Bagh was uh, one side and Zulfi Karali Bhutto's was the adjoining. So that was wow. the stature they enjoyed. Uh, so to think- Was of, that their school or was that where they lived? No, this is where the Motwani family lived. Lived, but, right, okay. But the very, whatever school they went to, which I do not know, and uh, either encouraged by the schoolmaster or by their own families, yeah, yeah, yeah. they went and marched in their khadi saris or whatever clothes and lied down on railway tracks. Uh, the other story I wanted you to tell us is about how Subhash Chandra Bose visited the family home and what happened. Yeah, well, so the story is that uh, Subhash Chandra Bose uh, came for breakfast to my Nana's house. Uh, it was a Congress party meeting in some year. And it uh, must be, I think, in, uh, in late 30s, mid 30s, I do not know. It must be mid 30s or something. So, uh, you know, the women were not allowed to go where the men were kind of sitting. So my mother says that I peeped through the door and looked at Subhash Chandra Bose. And she says one thing that the family kept talking about, that he was eating fish and drinking milk at the same time. <laughs> Because that's not what is done commonly in, uh, in no. families. Sindhis don't do that. No, Sindhis so don't Sindhis, do that. So Sindhis don't do that. Mm. So she said, you know, he was eating bachi prokhai and kheer prokhai, you know. <laughs> so 
Uh, that was one. But obviously, she was, as a young girl, uh, I think she must have been all of 18 years of age or 17. She was blown away by this uh, guy's uh, charisma uh, and charm and physical appearance. Uh, and she would describe it, you know, uh, uh, how nice his forehead and cheeks were and how, you know, all kinds of things that women will talk about. And so, so she said that I decided there and then, and if ever I have a child, I will name him after uh, Subhash Chandra Bose. So I was named Subhash. So I asked her, uh, how did you know there will be a boy? And what, what if it was a girl? He said, oh, I already decided if it was a girl, I'll call her Subhashini. <laughs> So, so that that is how enamored women become of uh, these young men. So she was really she always thought of Subhash Chandra Bose. She always thought he was the one who who should have been the leader of the this thing. Mm-hmm. And from what she was telling me, I think uh, he might have ended up having more women followers. <laughs> so Subhash, what was your father's name? Kanchan. I wanted to ask you about Khan Chand, you know, because Khan is actually a Muslim name. So how does Khan Chand become? But that was very common. I think those names, Khan Chands, were very common because that also speaks to the kind of uh, uh, blending that there was uh, even in our faith because uh, having names which were uh, compound names of Hindu and Muslims was not uncommon at all. Manchand is not an uncommon Sindhi name. So tell us about how your family left Sindh in the end, because I remember some really fabulous stories there as well. Yeah, as I said, we did not leave at the end of August of, uh, I mean, in August 47, for the reasons that I explained, that there was uh, a belief that uh, this is not a permanent division. And if it is a permanent division, it is not a permanent division of uh, people, and particularly in Sindh. And remember, because Sindh was not divided, uh, unlike Punjab and Bengal, because it was not divided, there was a feeling that uh, Sindhis would belong to Sindh and they will come back. If I believe if it was divided along the lines Punjab or Bengal was, then that feeling may not have been so strong that there was something to go to, but there was nowhere to go to. Yeah, I think after Gandhi or just leading to Gandhi's assassination, but sometimes in January 1948, I think that's when they must have left. So one, one point is that they did not leave out of compulsion and they did not uh, leave out of their own volition. They would have uh, liked uh, and wanted to stay on. The circumstances uh, were not going to permit them to do that. And that was very clear. Going back to the original question that you were asking about freedom movement, and I said that, you know, uh, people who were in judiciary or trade or commerce really wanted to balance these two things all the time. The memory that I have of uh, the, I think, must have been the day after independence, the judge's house which was on a hilltop, and the court in Sakhar, next near Rohiri, the court was on a higher hill, and the judge's house was on a lower hill. 
So they call it Vadi Takri and Nandi Takri. You know, on that hill where the house was, a flag of India flew on the top of Judge's house. And keep in mind that a lot of violence had taken place in Punjab, where Sikhs who are visibly more visibly visibly different, uh, there was a massacre going on, and the our domestic help was a Sindhi Sikh. Now, not many people know that Sikhism was very prevalent and very strong in Sindh. And this family of uh, Sardars or Sikhs came from a village which was a predominantly Sikh village in Sindh. Our domestic uh, help's name was Sardar Jaman Singh. He and his family, his two his small brothers uh, and, and young wife, they were with us. And so my father decided that the Pakistani flag has to go up now on the judge's house and it will be hoisted by Jaman Singh so that people could see the loyalty, the loyalty, loyalty or, yeah. to the new, new country. So, so Jaman Singh went up and why I remember it because he took me along the stairs oh. on top of the... Wow. So I am You were six years old. Five, I think. Five years old. Yeah, I'm not going to be six, but five. So I remember that. And I remember him putting this uh, flag up. But also he was so mighty nervous. Mm. Very afraid, very nervous. And I remember my father uh, cajoling him and telling him that you should do this. And he had the local staff who were Muslims uh, also to go along and witness it. When the time came to leave, uh, I think the biggest worry for the family was safety of uh, Jaman Singh and his family. So the right. story I want to tell you is uh, my father had this big problem on how do we get them across because every station, the train would stop. We came by train and there were a whole lot of people on the platform to see who is leaving. And there was a lot of killings going on on uh, railway platforms. So we had police, I cannot remember, but there was a large number of police, uh, policemen in uniforms who were in the railway compartment in which we were sitting, whole family, and we were very small. So, you know, I had uh, two younger sister, sisters, one must have been a few months old. So the police was there, of course, to, to escort us up to the border. And everywhere the train would slow down or stop, there will be hordes of people coming and wanting to drag uh, any person who looks like a Sikh. So these policemen had actually protected him. They put handcuffs on them. And they said to them that these are our prisoners. We are taking them to be hanged. You can't touch them. They actually were uh, handcuffed uh, throughout the journey and then let off at the border. And that is how the family was protected. Then Jaman Singh and his family came safely into India. Wow. And and the police were there because your uh, father was a judge? Yeah, there was police attached to the court as well. Right. Okay. Otherwise, an, a regular family probably wouldn't have had that I believe right? not. No, not the police. But I think, I mean, some families had the Muslim friends who protected them. We've heard a lot of stories like this. Right. In this case, they were, of course, the other thing is they were all policemen were Muslim. 
Uh, so they could only take them so far and then... Yeah, well, they didn't have to go. You just needed safety up to the border. Uh, and frankly, my memories faded after that because I really do not know where the train went, where we got off, and a whole lot of things. So, uh, but all all I know is that we landed up in Bombay, in Gyangar, at the Motwani's house. And they looked after you and helped in the yeah. rehabilitation. And they did this all. Lots of families were coming to Gyangar because it's such a big house in uh, car, and of course they were all the near and distant relatives. Uh, that was their camp. Instead of going to Ulasnagar, you went to Gyangar. I'm so glad you told us this, Subhash, because I've always felt that uh, the Motwani's just never got enough appreciation for the huge contribution they made uh, to the freedom movement, bringing in the um, microphones, which before that, uh, nobody could hear Gandhi, right? There'd, there'd be this mm -hmm. huge crowd. And what I've heard is that they would be, Gandhi would speak and a few people would hear and there would be platforms elsewhere. People would repeat what they heard him say so that Absolutely. people further down would hear. And then, of course, uh, Nanik Motwani brought in the technology mm -hmm. and he would travel himself with uh, yes. uh, Congress right. leaders to these um, uh, meetings and set up everything himself. Thank you so much, Subhash. That Thank was really, you, very, very enriching. And uh, thanks a lot. Thank you very much for joining us. It thank, was, you, uh, thank you for the opportunity to reconnect with you and uh, we hope uh, we'll stay connected. Definitely. Indeed. We look forward and, to it. And uh, yeah. listeners, if anyone has uh, uh, questions, please write in and we'll address them. Um, and I, I think if you have anything you want to ask Dr. Vijlani, please send them and we'll pass them on to him. Thank please you so much. Please follow us on Twitter and on our YouTube channel and you'll hear more from us in due course. Thank you very much, Dr. Bijlani. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye for now. Bye-bye.